It was the longest night of the longest year, with the shortest period of light. When the sun was at its lowest elevation in the sky, and the North Pole was tilted as far away as it can be from the sun. On this sacred occasion, which has been solemnly observed by many cultures throughout history, for which Stonehenge was even built, many of us went outside and looked up at the stars. It was the winter solstice, and even though we are far removed from the days when human civilizations closely observed the changing of the seasons for the sake of our survival, there was a deep sense of desperation in our stargazing this year. What were we looking for? Yes, many of us were hoping to see the Great Conjunction, or what has been called the Celestial Summit Meeting, when Jupiter aligns so closely with Saturn, an event that had not occurred in nearly 400 years. But why? Why did we all suddenly become amateur astrologers? What were we looking for that night? Were we looking for something beautiful, something miraculous, supernatural, magical, otherworldly, or transcendent? Surely we were. And yet, at the end of a horrifying year, it could also be that we were looking for a sign, a sign of life, a sign of hope, a sign that things would be better, that something new and different was on the horizon, a sign of life at the end of a year filled with frustration, heartache, and death. On December 21st, our necks tilted back and our eyes turned toward the heavens, and we were as close as one can get to the famous Magi from the Gospel of Matthew that we remember each year on Epiphany. There is something mysteriously enchanting about those Persian astrologers and Zoroastrian priests who were more like Eastern magicians and wizards than kings. They observed a star at its rising, interpreted it to be a sign of the birth of the king of the Jews, and set out on a long journey across the Middle East to seek for and hopefully find this promised child. In many ways, the story of the Magi is a metaphor for all of human history. It's a story of religion and astrology and science and technology, a story that always begins with human searching, searching for what is not yet known or possible. Science fiction writer Arthur Clarke once offered three laws about the future. First, when a distinguished but elderly scientist says that something is possible, they are almost certainly right. When they state that something is impossible, they are probably wrong. Number two, the only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture a little past them into the impossible. And three, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Religion, astrology, science, and technology were all born of the same phenomenon, the human search for that which is beyond, 
Human beings are wired to be seekers. We search for everything, food, shelter, love, community, friendship, knowledge, truth, answers, meaning, purpose, life. We even search for God and for our true selves. To be human is to search. In Walker Percy's famous novel, The Moviegoer, the main character, Binks, is on a search for meaning and indeed a search for God and declares how primal and important this searching process is for human beings. He says, what is the nature of the search? Really, it is very simple, so simple that it is easily overlooked. The search is what anyone would undertake if they were not sunk in the everydayness of their ordinary life. This morning, he says, for example, I felt as if I had come to a strange island, and what does such a castaway do? Why, they poke around in the neighborhood and don't miss a trick. To become aware of the possibility of the search is to be on to something. Not to be on to something is to be in despair. Percy was claiming that to not be searching for something or someone is to be in despair. Why? Because there's something within us that compels us to go beyond the ordinary demands and routines of living. And the world, its nature, structure, and our experience of it provides clues to us that there is something beyond. Sociologist Peter Berger refers to these clues as signals of transcendent signs that force us to consider the possibility that humanity and the world are not accidents of chance. Instead, we are ordered by something greater than ourselves from which we derive meaning. These signs point beyond themselves to universal principles of reality upon which existence itself is ordered. Some of the signs Berger mentions are the cry for order and meaning, the cry for justice, the cry for joy, and the cry for love. These cries for order, meaning, justice, joy, and love seem to point to an authentic human need for lasting versions of these principles that exist beyond our world. They testify to another, truer reality which transcends the present, an eternal existence in which order, meaning, justice, joy, and love determine everything else for eternity. However, even these Powerful signs of transcendence do not explain the daring quest of the Magi. Why did they travel? The Magi already had meaning and purpose, God and self-understanding. They already had their own religion and society and sophisticated astrology, advanced science and technology. They had no need to travel across the desert to find more of what they already possessed, so that cannot be what they were searching for. And to complicate matters further, the star of Bethlehem was not the first star of its kind in history to signify the advent of a divine king who was worthy of worship. There was another star both the Magi and King Herod would have known intimately. Just a generation before the star rose over Bethlehem, the Julian star or star of Caesar stretched across the sky for an entire week in 44 BC. Can you imagine how many necks were tilted back and eyes fixed on the stars that week? Astrologists now believe that it was an outburst of a great comet 
Nevertheless, it was a stunning and memorable constellation. Coincidentally, the star appeared only four months after Emperor Julius Caesar was murdered by Brutus in the middle of a celebration that his adopted son Octavius was holding in his honor during July, which of course is the very birth month named after him. For more than a week, the star was bright enough to be seen during the day. And this fortuitous astrological event was understood by many in Rome as a sign that the recently deceased emperor, controversial as he was, had been deified by the gods. Being a cunning strategist, the young Octavian, later to be known as Augustus, seized on the star's appearance and power and used it as a religious and political propaganda to persuade the Roman Senate to grant Julius Caesar the status of divinity. This meant, of course, that Octavius would now be considered the son of God, making his rule over the Republic inevitable. From that day on, every Roman coin that was printed had an image of Caesar on one side and on the other, the Julian star with the words divine Julius printed in Latin to remind people of the star they saw with their own eyes that signified the eternal divinity of Julius Caesar and his son Augustus. In fact, the coin that the Herodians presented to Jesus likely had the Julian star upon it. Putting his famous reply, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, even starker relief. The writer of the Gospel of Matthew brilliantly tells the story of the Magi as a counter to imperial astrology. This nativity narrative offers an alternative astrology, a new cosmology. He, he was trying to help his audience read the stars in a new and different way as an alternative to the theology of empire and Caesar. He didn't need to mention Caesar or Rome like Luke's Christmas story did. All he had to do was talk about a star that signaled the birth of a king and everyone in the territories occupied by the Roman Empire would have read the story of Caesar's star and had that in the back of their minds as they heard Matthew's narrative, especially King Herod. Herod had gained authority as king of Judea from one of Caesar's rivals, Mark Antony. After Antony's death, Herod pledged his loyalty to Caesar Augustus, but their relationship was always so tenuous. Herod did everything he could to demonstrate fidelity to Caesar, building temples and naming countless cities in Caesar's honor. He even put the image of the Julian star on his own coins. But he was a client of Caesar's and a puppet leader, and the fragility of their relationship could be threatened by any little thing. For instance, another star in the sky, claiming a divine king had been born. The strange news of a rising star brought by foreign priests from Persia had the potential to completely derail the relationship that Herod had spent so much money and worked so hard to build. The vassal king was shaken, and rightly so, by the arrival of the Magi because of the horrifying consequences of losing favor with Caesar. So Herod joined with the Magi in their search for the child, but for a far more nefarious reason. 
He was not, as he so disingenuously claimed, searching to pay homage to the child. He was searching for the child in order to destroy it, to kill it. In Jerusalem, the motivations of all the characters in Matthew's story become very clear. They were all searching, but with different intentions. Herod was searching for the child so that he could destroy it, to keep his relationship with Caesar intact and maintain power and control, status, and the status quo. The religious leaders, yes, they searched too. They searched the scriptures and they found the child there in the prophet Micah's words, but they did so only also to preserve their relationship with power, their relationship with Herod, to maintain their political power and control, status, and the status quo. The Magi, on the other hand, searched for the child for a different reason. In order to bow down, pay their respects, to show reverence, and to offer their gifts to this wild new thing that was coming into the world. What emerges in this wonderful story is a comparison of two kinds of human searching, epitomized and embodied by the Magi on the one hand and Herod on the other, a comparison between a kind of searching that leads to life and a kind of searching that leads to death. To be human is to search, but there's a kind of searching that is one that destroys life and a kind of searching that leads to life, that animates and enlivens human flourishing. One is driven like Herod was by fear and anger, and the other is driven like the Magi by wonder and joy. The way of searching driven by fear and anger always ends in violence and murder, and the way of searching that is driven by wonder and joy always ends in gratitude and hope. Cameroonian philosopher Achille Membe coined the term recently necropolitics, or the politics of death, to describe the way social and political power dictate how some people may live and some people must die, how power is enacted by creating zones of death and reducing certain groups of people to precarious conditions of life. As it said in the Didache, there are two paths that we can take. One that leads to life and a path that leads to death. In searching for the child, Herod was exercising this necropolitics of death, determining as if he were a god who gets to live and who must die. His actions, however, were not, as we often think of them, the result of an irrational temper tantrum by a vicious bloodthirsty monster. Herod was not a good guy, but he had very clear and well-thought-out reasons for his search-and-destroy mission. It was to maintain the status quo for the purpose of protecting his power. As humans, we, we all desire security. It is a natural part of what it means to be human. And yet that desire often leads us to strive to protect our power, which can result in death and destruction. The fear of losing what we already have causes us to try to stamp out anything new that might threaten our position. This is why protecting our power is a dangerous and deathly activity. When we seek to maintain our power at all costs, all manner of violence becomes justifiable. And we turn out to be no better 
than Herod or his patron Caesar. Howard Thurman famously wrote, Again and again it has been demonstrated that the lines are held by those who hold on to security only as long as the status quo remains intact. If a person is convinced that they are safe only so long as they are able to use their power to create a sense of insecurity for others, then the measure of their security is in their own hands. If security or insecurity is at the mercy of a single individual or group, then social control becomes routine. All imperialism, he says, functions in this way. It is a sad irony now today that many who profess to be followers of Jesus have let their desire for security get so out of hand that they have become addicted to power. When power and security were things Jesus constantly called people to give up. I'm reminded of the overeager mother of James and John Zebedee, who went to Jesus with her sons and, like the Magi, humbly knelt before him. Jesus said, what do you want? And Mother Zebedee said, make it so that my two sons will sit, one on your right and one on your left when you come into the kingdom. But Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Then the ten other disciples heard what was happening and were furious with the Zebedee brothers and their mom. And Jesus said, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lord their power over people. And their great leaders are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you. Whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. Just as the Son of God came not to be served but to serve to give his life as a ransom for many. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Mother Zabidi came to Jesus searching for power for her sons, but grasping for power is the opposite of what it means to follow Jesus. There is no hierarchy or power in a kingdom where the last are first and the least are greatest. Power in and of itself though is not the problem. Jesus, of course, had power. Power simply defined is the ability to impact and affect the conditions of our own lives and the lives of others. What Mother Zebedee wanted for her sons was power over others or domination. But what Jesus taught his followers how to do was to give up their power for the sake of others, especially the poor and the vulnerable, the widows, orphans, foreigners, people in distress with their backs against the wall, suffering under the necropolitics of oppression. We don't often think about the power we have, all the power that we have. The empire and the powers that be would love it if we all pretended like we had none. But in fact, all we really have is the power we've been given in our particular sphere of influence to make a difference in this world. Unlike Herod, the Magi came to Bethlehem searching for a child with curiosity and humility. They were not searching to establish or protect their power, but simply to bow down, pay homage, to offer themselves and their gifts in gratitude for the opportunity to find life and joy. As we say goodbye to 2020, and embark on the journey of this new year of 2021. 
We need not start our pilgrimage with the usual resolutions, but with the important question. What are we searching for? What are you searching for in this new year? What were we looking in the sky for on the winter solstice back in December 21st? We weren't looking for power, were we? We were looking for life, signs of hope and transcendence, order, meaning, justice, joy, and love. We weren't searching for ways to maintain power, control, status, or the status quo. No, a star in the sky like a child being born is a sign of life and hope. Something new and different is coming into the world, a new way of living and being. The future is open and there is no horizon. What is the current reality? No longer has to be. Another world is possible if we are willing to search for it. And so if life and joy is what we want to find this new year, we must stop trying to protect our power, resist all the death-dealing ways of Herod, give up our power for the sake of others, and search for the newness that is being born out of the ashes of 2020. We must search with wonder and joy for all that is living, trees and birds, flowers, rivers and oceans, people, and bow down at the foot of the new creation God is birthing. We must search not just for a star in the sky, but the sparkle in our neighbor's eyes. Pay homage to any hope we can find for a better world, and let our lives manifest this new epiphany that is God's great dream for us all. Amen.